Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project designed to share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, and how we build and sustain it. I'm Elizabeth Anderson, the Executive Director of the World Justice Project and the host of today's Rule of Law Talk conversation. Our topic is wildlife trafficking, and our guest is Olivia Swack Goldman, Executive Director of a new organization, the Wildlife Justice Commission, that's working to address this challenge for rule of law. Transnational organized crime is a significant rule of law problem, representing a breakdown in governance itself, and also often fueling related crime, corruption, violence, and conflict. These crimes are notoriously difficult to combat as they are perpetrated by powerful and dangerous criminal networks and involve complex cross-border evidentiary and jurisdictional questions that make enforcement prosecutions extremely difficult. Wildlife crime, that is the illegal trafficking in protected wildlife, timber, and fish, is a large and growing transnational criminal challenge Indeed, it's the fourth largest category of such crime globally. The Wildlife Justice Commission is bringing a new and innovative approach to combating this scourge through bringing perpetrators to justice. Here's the conversation I had with Executive Director of the Commission, Olivia Swat goldman about their work and its impact on the rule of law. Olivia, welcome to Rule of Law Talk. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to connect and to learn about this new institution working to combat wildlife crime. Tell us about the Wildlife Justice Commission. Well, the Wildlife Justice Commission was established in 2015 out of a sense of, of really of urgency and frustration. Um, there are a lot of laws, international and national implementing laws, concerning um, the protection of endangered species, and yet they weren't being enforced in a way that could actually stop the, um, the crisis with endangered species. So we were losing uh, a number of species, and if we didn't do something different, we would no longer be able to, to have these species in our, in our, in our uh, systems. So the idea was to set up this accountability mechanism to ensure that the, the laws that were in place were actually enforced by governments. Fascinating. Well, I'm eager to hear how exactly it goes about doing its work. Well, what we do is we do intelligence-led investigation. That's the start of everything we do. And there's a, a sort of a, a cycle between the intelligence and the investigation. And that leads us and tells us where we can have the most effect in combating wildlife crime. So my colleagues and I all come from, um, from criminal law backgrounds. So we're not typical conservationists. We bring the skills that we developed, whether it was fighting uh, war crimes or uh, transnational drug crimes, and bring that to the issue of wildlife crime, because it is transnational organized crime and needs to be addressed as such. Interesting. So give us an example of a case that you would work on. So, for example, we go for the highest level traders. Um, there are other organizations doing great work and putting their lives at stake to combat the poaching, um, but we have added value by going after the highest level criminals. So, for example, in our, our first case concerned a village um, in, uh, in Vietnam, close to Hanoi, where it was sort of an open uh, uh, marketplace for wildlife products. So this is ivory, 
um, pangolin scales, uh, rhino horn, bear, just anything you, you, you can imagine, all of which are tremendously endangered and, um, and are forbidden to trade in. Um, so we did our intelligence-led investigation. We go in, we figure out who the key people are in these networks. We collect extensive evidence. We document everything we see. We ground truth it. So it's not just what's happening online, for example, or in conversations with the traders, but we actually go and see it and capture this on, on film or on, on camera. We compile an extensive uh, case file and we give it to the government and we ask them to take steps. So basically, we make it very easy for them to bring these cases and very difficult not to. Um, and then once we give them that information, they can then use that either directly uh, in their court system, if that's allowed, or use it as lead information to generate additional evidence that they can use to prosecute these criminals. And how do governments react? Uh, they've react, reacted in a, in a mixed way. So our first case in Vietnam, for example, the Vietnamese authorities weren't quite sure what to do with this 5,000 pages of, of evidence that we gave them concerning 53 individuals. Um, the largest trader of which was dealing in 33 million U.S. dollars uh, on his own per year. And this is only what we could justify or verify. Um, so they said, thank you, we'll look into it, but nothing really happened. So the way that our, our model works at the Wildlife Justice Commission is we try and work with the government as much as possible. So we continue to engage with them, to encourage them to take steps. Um, but after a a period of time, about a year, when not, nothing had happened, we engaged in what we call our national dialogue process, where we engage with um, with embassies on the ground, with local stakeholders, again, on the basis of very objective um, evidence that we've collected. So it makes it very concrete. This individual on this day tried to sell one of our undercover operatives um, 18 rhino horns or, or a ton of ivory. Um, and this makes it very um, uh, objective and then then stakeholders can go to the government and ask why they haven't actually brought these cases. Um, sometimes, some governments, all you need to do is give them an indication that this is happening and this is a concrete lead, and then they'll, they'll take steps. Other governments um, are less amenable, especially in the beginning when we were first starting out when they didn't really know the, the, the quality of our, of our evidence. So with the Vietnamese, for example, um, they, uh, we engaged in the national dialogue process, and we have one of the unique aspects of the Wildlife Justice Commission is we have the opportunity to hold a government accountable if they don't hold the individuals accountable for the crime. So their lack of enforcement is something that we can raise at the international level. So with the Vietnamese, we convened a public hearing in the Peace Palace in The Hague um, in front of a panel of experts. And these are former presidents of international courts and tribunals, investigative journalists, um, all independent and objective that verified our work and came with recommendations. Um, so in the case of Vietnam, they came recommendations based on the, the Vietnamese obligations under the CITES Treaty, under their national implementing legislation, but also their obligations under the um, under UNTOC and UNCOC, so obligations that the government has taken upon itself and that the panel felt weren't being um, implemented correctly in this particular case. And what's interesting is... Um, the Vietnamese government since the public hearing, we've worked with very closely. So they very much appreciated um, the evidence that we were able to provide them and the support we're able to provide them. So we always try and work with the government and try and help them to bring these cases. Because in the end, it's the governments that, that are the only ones that can bring these cases. So we need to try and support them in those efforts. So it seems to me like this is a methodology that could work for lots of different 
kinds of crime. Why wildlife crime and or has it been used in other kinds of contexts? It hasn't been used in other kind of context. And I think you're absolutely right. This is a, a model in a way that can be used for a variety of different crimes. And that was kind of the idea behind it. Let, let's see if it works here. Because there, the idea is these are crimes that are not subject to international adjudication in another forum. The countries that it's most relevant for aren't prioritizing it. For example, Vietnam in this case, or one of the source countries, whether it's Kenya or South Africa, for example, um, they're not necessarily prioritizing it because they have other issues. And countries that could bring these cases um, don't see the link as much. So the Netherlands, for example, they maybe have the resources to do it, but they don't necessarily see that it's in there justifiable to prioritize that as opposed to things that have closer link to the Netherlands. Um, so then you almost have a lacuna. There's, there's, you know, the, the jurisdiction is there, but the enforcement uh, isn't there and the prioritization isn't there. So this is a model that can work for other crimes, for example, human trafficking, um, where you have, again, a similar idea of there's countries that have jurisdiction, but it's not a priority, and you have others that think it's important, but not necessarily enough to prioritize it over things that are closer to their, um, more relevant to their populations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And and what's, what overall has been the impact of the commission? It's been in existence three years three, or so? Three and a half years, uh-huh. yeah, almost four years. And it's been tremendous. And um, my background's not in, in the, from the NGO world, and I have to say it's been tremendous to see how effective a small, not so small anymore, we're growing, uh, but a very young and nimble organization can be. Um, we've now, we're conducting 24 investigations in 24 countries, Wow. Um, we have very good relationships with a number of governments. We continue to put pressure on them to bring cases against those most responsible for these crimes. So the higher up uh, we go. Um, but it is transnational organized crime. So we move with the networks. Once you uncover you know, one network, it leads to another. And you have to be very nimble to follow the, the, the networks to, uh, to their next uh, location. Um, but it's been tremendously successful. And, um, and that's really gratifying. Give us a sense of the global scale of wildlife crime. Well, what, 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 what's the problem here that we're tackling? Yeah, well, it's actually the fourth largest transnational uh, crime. Wow. I know. And it's something that before I got into this, I didn't really have a sense that it was that large. Um, but it is an area where there's a lot of corruption, so it's related to other uh, crimes as well. And that kind of feeds wildlife crime, and, it, and wildlife crime feeds corruption. So it's very much interlinked with it. Um, the estimates range to about $20,000 um, billion US dollars a year. And that's not even including fishery crime, IUU fishery, or timber. So it's tremendously lucrative. And that's what we're trying to change. Because right now, it's low chance of getting caught um, and high reward. So it makes some kind of sense. Economic sense. Exactly. Right. So we're trying to raise the chance of getting, uh, of getting caught, you know, increase the, there are other organizations working on increasing penalties, but making sure that it, it's, it's, there's more of a deterrent so that these um, criminals turn to some other form of uh, mm-hmm. activity. And how do you find cases? Well, um, other NGOs sometimes give us information, but generally we start by, um, by we interact with the traders online. And then we, we pretend that we're high-level traders, so we're asking for a, a ton of ivory, for example. Um, and then we engage with them, and then we go and see the, um, see the product. And one case generally leads to another. The network's spread out, and they deal in multiple uh, um, 
uh, commodities. So basically, from there, we, we move along. And we always try and see where can we have the most strategic value. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if there are other organizations that are active and are effective, then we, we leave it to them. But we really try and go after those, the heads of these organizations. Um, and that's, you know, that takes time to get into. An investigation can take up to two years. Um, but that's something, again, that makes us a little bit unique because we're willing to put in the time and the effort and the resources to stay in these, um, in these networks until we can make sure that we get to the highest level. Sounds terrific. So uh, the listeners of Rule of Law Talk are particularly preoccupied with rule of law. So uh, connect the dots for us between working on this specific rule of law challenge and the impact it might have on the rule of law more broadly in the country where you're taking on an investigation. Yeah, well, I really see that there's a a tremendous link because what you're having is you have these uh, laws that are there to protect the weak in society, and in this case, uh, wildlife, but they're not being enforced. And so it's very likely that the other laws are also not being enforced. And you have sort of a breakdown in the rule of law in uh, in these societies. And as I mentioned, you also have uh, corruption uh, that goes with it. You have customs violations. You have financial uh, crimes that go with it as well. So they're tied to a bunch of other crimes and and a lack of uh, enforcement as well. These laws aren't being enforced, but you get then um, people from the local communities that aren't being protected one way or the other and then are brought into these crimes. So it's very much also a security issue. Um, You have then the, the rangers that are risking their life um, and that don't necessarily feel sufficiently protected. So it's um, these kind of crimes flourish in countries that have um, less stable, less strong rule of law, and these crimes generate a tremendous amount of, of income that's then used to strengthen the illicit activities and those involved in it who then are, again, not, um, not focused on protecting the rule of law. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fascinating. So where does the organization go from here? Is it just more more investigations in more countries or, or give us a sense of the future for the commission? Well, I think what's really exciting is not only the, you know, the 70 uh, high-level traders that we've now uh, helped, to, um, helped to get arrested and, and prosecuted or the networks that we've disrupted, but also bringing the information that we're seeing from the trade and bringing that to policymakers and to others to make the, the international efforts to eradicate this trade more effective. So I see that we really have a role to play in sharing the expertise and, and uh, synthesizing the lessons that we've learned and that we see and bringing that um, to the international community larger. For example, we did an event um, recently in in October. There was a conference on on international wildlife trade, and we did a session with UNODC and and OECD and and a few others on the role of corruption in wildlife crime. And I think we're able to bring very concrete information to that discussion. I mean, everybody knows it's an issue in this field and, and recognizes that something needs to be done, but we're able to say, this is where we've seen it. This is the specific instances, and this is what can be done to address it. Um, so I feel like we have a real role to play in helping um, the rule of law discussion more generally as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, I'm delighted to, to learn about the Wildlife uh, Justice Commission and to know uh, that you're doing this great work and, and end of its rule of law impact. So we'll, we'll be watching closely. Where can our listeners learn more? Um, at, on our website, uh-huh, uh, which is www.wildlifejustice.org. Okay, terrific. 
Um, well, thanks again, Olivia Swap goldman the executive director of the Wildlife Justice Commission, who joined Rule of Law Talk uh, to tell us about their work. Thank you for having me.